Hey, Bridgetown. Thank you so much for gathering with us online. Uh, if you have your Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 17. And if you're at home and you don't have your Bible, I would encourage you to actually get up and go grab it. Now, I confess as one of your pastors that I have often not had my Bible open during these online gatherings, but there's something to it. It's so easy to check out during these teachings and be kind of half texting, half listening. And as unideal as it is, this is what church looks like right now. So if you're up for it, would you join me as we open the scriptures together? If we haven't met before, my name is Colin. I'm on the communities team here at Bridgetown. And if you're new to Bridgetown, maybe you moved here during or just before COVID, we're glad you've joined us and we can't wait to meet you in person. Normally, we run a class three times a year called Basics, where, by which we get people into Bridgetown communities, these groups of 12 to 15, who all live in the same neighborhood and gather each week to share a meal or what we call communion, and to pray together and to practice the way of Jesus together. And ultimately, we want you to know that at the end of the day, it is not these online gatherings that are holding our church together. It's the communities of men and women following Jesus together in our city that are the backbone of our church, where deep life change and transformation are fostered. So if you're not in a community yet, just hold on just for a little bit. We hope that we can resume basics soon. And in the meantime, we recommend that you join a triad or you grab two or three friends to start one. And again, if you are in a community, again, hold on. This season is simultaneously the most important time and the most difficult time to be in a Bridgetown community. So keep pressing in, being patient with one another, fighting for connection and faithfulness. It is worth it. Okay, community's pastor rant over. Before we turn to our text, join me in a short thought experiment. I want you to take a moment to call to mind your eighth grade self. For some of you, that image is prettier than others. But take a moment to remember what you felt like, your day-to-day, -day, maybe your very questionable fashion choices. For me, it was a curly mullet and a series of Jesus t-shirts and chunky bracelets. You're welcome for that visual. Before coming to Bridgetown, I worked with junior high students for about seven years. And something I noticed about them is that nearly all junior hires have their thing. And what I mean by that is they have something to which they've tied themselves or which they center their identity around. If you talk to a junior hire for more than about five minutes, you'll typically discover what that thing is. You have the athletes who will immediately tell you about their sport, their team, how practice went. There's your class clown who's easily spotted by their loud jokes or the fart noises they make. If you were in junior high in the 2000s, which is when I was in junior high, there's the girl with the choker and the black nail polish who really wants you to know she's not like other girls. For me, my thing in sixth grade was my diehard love for The Simpsons. And I mean, it was an obsessive love for The Simpsons. I watched every episode. I recorded them on a VCR, if you remember what a VCR is. I owned bobbleheads. I wore Simpsons t-shirts, the whole, the whole thing. And maybe if you think about it, you can remember your thing. Why do eighth graders do that? Why this obsession or attachment to one thing? Whether through over-the-top antics or clothes or through quiet association with a group or seeking to be unnoticed, it seems that every eighth grader is searching for a sense of identity and belonging. Often so much so that they throw themselves headlong into one thing just so their identity is secure 
I'm a band kid. I'm a football player. I'm on student government. It's clear, this is my thing. This is who I am. Because even from a young age, we are looking for something or someone that we can build and center our identity on. We do this naturally and we do it instinctually. And as funny as that can be in eighth grade, what happens when those eighth graders grow up? Does all of this just kind of go away? Well, of course not. It simply morphs. We shift away from more overt symbols of identity and security, like the right clothes, the cool group, etc., and into more nuanced and socially acceptable forms, like marriage or career, health, and the like. We forge this complex set of identities, typically centering on one or two things. And that is because at the core, human beings are restless creatures, desperately seeking a sense of identity. We are meaning makers and we are dying to know who we are and we ache to know our place in the world. This is why every great origin story and every great philosophy and religion, whether secular or not, engages with two core questions. First, who is God? And even more so, who am I? All of them aim to give an answer to who you are and what it is that you can build your identity around. This is also why every time you meet someone who is deeply secure, not in that kind of like overconfident way that compensates for their insecurity, but I mean someone who is truly secure and knows and is at rest with who they are, you're instantly drawn to them. They're calm, they're magnetic, and they're able to point us to truth without being blinded by their own insecurity. They're often the best listeners and friends, and they are a joy to be around because they're unabashedly themselves. With all of that in mind, I want to propose to you that Jesus of Nazareth was more secure and confident in his identity than any human being who has ever lived. And he offers us something upon which we can center our identity. With that, look down with me in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 22. It says this, When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yeah, he, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. The end. That is our story. And I know I say this every time I teach, but this is a bizarre story. Perhaps because the Bible is, by far, the most bizarre book I've ever read. But this is no doubt a strange story, even for the Bible. Uh, Tim Mackey cleverly called it a story about death and taxes, and it quite literally is that. So to help us orient a little bit, let's, let's give some context to jog our memories. 
Matthew chapter 16 marked an important turning point in the gospel. If you remember, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples when he asked them, who do people say that I am? And after they answered that, he asked them more pointedly, yeah, yeah, but who do you, the disciples, say that I am? And Peter comes in with the golden ticket answer, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In other words, you're the one that we've been waiting for. So Jesus says, bingo, that's it in the Greek. You got it, Simon, that's, that's right. God must have showed you that. But then Jesus goes on to predict the exact opposite of what Peter and the disciples had in mind, saying that he must go to Jerusalem, where rather than conquer, he'll suffer at the hands of religious rulers, and rather than reign, he'll be killed, and then he'll rise again. Peter then decides it's a good idea to rebuke Jesus, essentially saying, Jesus, you clearly haven't been reading your Bible. You have this all wrong. At which point Jesus says, actually, you've got it all wrong. Jesus then calls Peter Satan. It's a whole thing. But the turning point is this. From Caesarea Philippi forward, Jesus is on a trajectory towards Jerusalem, where he knows he will suffer, be crucified, and die. And while this creates all sorts of responses from the disciples, it is in this mysterious conquering of death by death that Jesus will bring about God's rule and reign, that what feels like defeat is actually a victory of divine love. And so Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Pick up with me in verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, again, not far from Jesus' hometown, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Son of man is Jesus's favorite messianic title for himself. But notice, it doesn't say that he as a Messiah is gonna arrive in Jerusalem to rule, but that he'll, quote, be delivered into the hands of men. Catch almost the rhythmic flow. The son of man will be delivered into the hands of men. It should kind of catch our ear, causing us to slow down and take it in. The son of man, the one who is standing on behalf of and as a representative of humanity, will be delivered into the hands of the very people he came to save. Verse 23, he says, they will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Notice this is the same pattern as in chapter 16. You have suffering, death, resurrection. This time though, the response of the disciples is that they were quote, filled with grief or that they were deeply depressed. So Peter doesn't challenge Jesus this time. Instead, there's just grief. They can't see how there's hope in this. How is the kingdom supposed to come without a king? It is yet another time where they fail to understand Jesus, understand his mission, and understand the upside down nature of the kingdom he proclaims. After Jesus' second prediction, we pick up in verse 24. It says this, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, now just so you know, Capernaum is likely Peter's hometown. They're probably staying at his house or the house of a relative. And ultimately, again, they're on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus will be killed by the religious leaders. And who do they run into? It says, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter. Just the people Peter wants to see, the guys who work for the guys that in a few short chapters will kill Jesus. They bug Peter asking him, doesn't your teacher or your rabbi pay the temple tax? Now, what may not be obvious to us is that this is a charged moment. The temple is not simply a church, as if the ushers walked up to you and were like, hey there, did you uh, pay your tithe and offering? The temple is the center of gravity for Jewish life. 
situated in the center of the capital, taking up a massive plot of land in the city. Its significance was as this complex mix of a religious and social center and the power hub for Jewish society. Most importantly, in the Jewish mind, the temple was the place where God's presence was found. More on that in a little bit. But on a practical level, it took funds to maintain the grounds and pay the many temple employees. Think about it. This is a massive grounds in a large area of land with a lot of employees. So it required money to pay those temple employees, including the religious leaders that Jesus just said are going to kill him. So to pay the tax was a sign of Jewish piety, right alongside pilgrimages to Jerusalem, synagogue worship on Sabbath, and the like. Yet, if you know Matthew, Jesus has already claimed to be greater than the temple, and he's made public critique of its leaders. The leaders already have it out for Jesus. So this moment is intense. And the question arises, does Jesus pay the temple tax? Will Jesus pay into a system that he believes has become corrupt and has missed the heart of God and will ultimately have him killed? Or will he not pay, causing others to question if he's a loyal Jew? Is he an enemy of Israel and the people? The tension is palpable. And rather than ask Jesus, they ask Peter. And he replies, uh, yeah, he, he does? Poor, poor Peter. From everything we know about Peter, he just does not seem to do well in conflict. Now, Peter could be telling the truth based on what he's seen. He's been with Jesus a while now and could have easily seen Jesus pay the tax in the past or he's saying what needs to be said to keep himself out of trouble, which he did plenty in the Gospels. Either way, I don't envy him. So Peter has this encounter. He gives them the answer that they want. He steps inside, and Jesus speaks up. He says, what do you think, Simon? Or riddle me this, Pete. From whom do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Now pause. Isn't Jesus just wonderful? Nothing to cut the tension of people who want to kill you like a nice parable. Kings in Jesus' day and in ours run governments, and those governments require funding to function. And typically that money comes from taxes, everyone's favorite. So to be a citizen, to be in the land and reap all the benefits of living there, you pay taxes. But Jesus is asking, well, what if your father is the king? While here in the States, we expect everyone to pay taxes, no matter who you're related to, you're going to pay taxes. In, in Jesus' day, that wasn't necessarily the case. If your father was in power or if your father was the king, you'd likely be exempt from taxes. You had unique privileges. So knowing this, Jesus asked Peter, who do kings take taxes from, their children or from others, meaning their subjects, those who are not their children? Verse 26, from others, Peter answered, then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. So, okay, then they don't have to pay. They are exempt or free. All right, so he, here is Jesus' logic. Who is the king of the temple? God is. He, he is in charge. And kings collect taxes from their subjects, but they don't collect taxes from their children. And who are the children of this king? Jesus and his disciples. They are children of God. And so, because they don't relate to God as subjects, but as children, they are exempt from the temple tax. Jesus has made a simple but clear argument for why the tax doesn't apply to him. So you'd think that Jesus would make his case and then that he wouldn't pay the tax, but that's not how it pans out. 
Verse 27, but Jesus says, so we may not cause offense. Go to the lake and throw out your line and cast your hook. You, you know what to do, Peter. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Jesus basically says, hey, because we don't want to offend anyone, go catch a fish. You're a fisher. You know the drill. And the first fish you catch is going to have some cash in its mouth. Give that cash to them to cover the tax for us. End of story. That's it. And the end of the story is by far the most bizarre part of the story. And it's strange for a couple reasons. First, since when is Jesus worried about offending people? I mean, don't get me wrong. Jesus was not a jerk, but he was no stranger to strong words. Phrases like brood of vipers, whitewashed tomb, and calling one of your best friends Satan are a few moments that come to mind. Yet here, he is concerned not to cause offense, not to scandalize or to trip people up. It seems that Jesus is willing to pick his battles, so to speak, to at times voluntarily choose to do what he's not obligated to do for the sake of others. Second, this is a strange miracle in part because it isn't entirely unique to Jesus. Many stories before and after Jesus include the discovery of some sort of treasure or money in the mouth of a fish. Next, this miracle is strange because we're not even told if Peter actually goes and catches the fish. So is Jesus making a joke about how tight on cash they are? It's like, we're so broke, go catch some money, Peter. Or is he being facetious? Or does this miracle actually happen? And finally, it's strange because we are led to believe that Jesus chooses to pay the tax that he just argued against. All of this is bizarre. Okay, with me, take a deep breath. All the nerdy exegesis work is over. But we have to ask, what is a strange story like this doing in our Bible? What do we do with it? And why does it matter to 21st century followers of Jesus living on the other side of the world in America with no temple? Oftentimes, we approach Jesus' stories looking for a moral or an ethic for it to tell us this is what you're supposed to do or the right way to live. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we read a story and we need to go live differently. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think Jesus is giving us a strategy for taxes or how to keep people happy with us or even any sort of clear template to follow. Instead, I think Jesus models for us what it looks like to show up in the world with an identity that is secure in God. Or put another way, Jesus shows us what it looks like to see the world through the eyes of being God's child. For most of us, uh, we've become desensitized to the language of Father, as it's just become another religious platitude. We pray things like Father God, Lord Jesus God, and a long kind of string of words. Or we simply default to opening our prayers with Father God as if on some sort of spiritual autopilot. And so we often forget that while Hebrew prophets talked about Israel being God's son or daughter, it would use parental language for God, no religious teacher prior to Jesus of Nazareth referred to God as Father, period. This is utterly unique to Jesus and his teachings. Yet, when Jesus calls to mind and he refers to the God of Israel, Father is always on the tip of his tongue. It's always my Father, 
your father, our father. This is how Jesus thinks and talks about God. It's ingrained in him. And if we slow down long enough and allow ourselves to take in that word, father, this is an incredibly intimate and relational way to talk about God. Even per Jesus's parable, Jesus assumes that his and our relationship to God is of a special kind, not just that of subjects to a king, but as children. It's kind of like a I know the owner sort of relationship, yet riddled with far more intimacy, or even better yet, a my father owns the place sort of relationship. And when his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teach us how to pray back in Matthew 6. Show us how to do it. How do we approach God? Jesus began with the words, our father, or in Aramaic, likely Abba or dad. Jesus invites his disciples to relate to God as he did, as a father with whom he has close relationship. And while we may be comfortable with this in theory or even in practice, few of us have allowed that relational reality to echo in our bones. Honestly, it was only when I became a father that I realized just how counterintuitive it has been for me to see God as a father. You know, I have a, I have a complicated relationship with my dad, and that's, that's a long story. But what I've come to realize is that whenever I sit down to pray, I do not reach for the word father or a more intimate term like dad. It, it feels foreign, it feels awkward, um, clumsy, or even fake. And if I'm honest, I'm much more comfortable with Jesus, Holy Spirit, or simply God. I have this memory etched in my mind of the day my daughter was born. Uh, we, we were still in the hospital, and it was early in the morning, and Maddie was sleeping, had a long night, as you can imagine. And I was sitting on one of those uncomfy benches that all the dads are stuck sleeping on. And I remember sitting there as I held our brand new, beautiful, sleeping baby girl to my bare chest. And as the morning light started to show through the window, and I was, just began to weep in the quiet. I, just, I, was, I was overcome with a vision of what it means for God to be father. And, and honestly, I, I couldn't put words to it, but I was able to feel the gravity of being loved in this kind of way, of being able to approach God with this kind of need and vulnerability and to lay on him with this kind of abandoned trust. And if God is that kind of father, and that's just simply who he is, and who we are finds its source in him, that makes us his children. So hidden within Jesus' invitation to see God as father is a call to embrace your identity as a child of God. At two of the most significant moments in Jesus' life, the father has spoken Jesus' identity as son over him, first at his baptism and again at his transfiguration. Both times the father said, this is my son whom I love, or this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. With him I am full of delight. The key moments of Jesus' life are marked by a profound sense of his identity as a child of God, as a son who is loved. And it is this sense of identity that is so pervasive that it permeates his every action, genuinely changing how he lives each day in real time. Jesus' identity, his sense of being loved as, as a son by the Father, 
It isn't paper thin. It isn't blown away in the face of difficulty or rejection or even pressure, or in his case, even people wanting to kill him. Instead, he remains rooted in who he is. He is free, to use his own words. And I think most of us ache for that, to feel deeply free in who we are, or to use David Benner's words, to embrace the gift of being ourselves. Not because we're extraordinary, because most of the time we're not, but because we're loved. Uh, Brendan Manning, one of my all-time favorite authors, he writes about this saying, it's one thing to feel loved by God when our life is together and all support systems are in place. Then self-acceptance is relatively easy. We may even claim that we are coming to like ourselves when we are strong, on top, in control, or as the Celts say, in fine form, a sense of security crystallizes. In other words, we feel like God loves us when we're at our best selves. We feel secure and safe when we're our strongest, when we succeed. But what happens when we're at our worst? And we'll have those days. When all of your insecurities come to the surface, what do you do then? Hey, many of us, when we feel insecure, vulnerable, threatened, we reach for an accomplishment or an identity of the past or of the future. I am this thing or I will be this thing, and we clutch onto it for dear life. We have an identity based solely in what we do rather than who we are. And so we scramble for significance, finding little that we can bank on, little that is solid and that we can thus stand firmly upon. Shifting from this identity to that identity, we're kind of ever on the verge of an identity crisis. Unsure of from what, where, in whom we can draw a sense of self. And then to contrast all of that, there is Jesus. And in this story, Jesus is free. He's secure. He's rooted in God's love. He's free to walk through life, even when he is opposed and challenged, when he isn't liked, and when his ministry is far from being successful. He's free to walk through life knowing that this is his father's world and he knows his place within it. He's safe, he's loved, and God is pleased with him. His identity is secure. And it's this Jesus who invites us to, like him, center our identity upon God, who is a loving father and on who we are as his children to relate to God and to ourselves in the same way he does. Now imagine living with that kind of confidence and freedom. How, how might that change just honestly everything? How, how you show up to work, how you show up to your marriage or to your friendships, how you cope with failure and rejection and pain. What if in those moments you had an unshakable core rooted in God's love for you. That at the end of the day, I'm loved. God is pleased with me. I'm his child. I'm free. Further, we see that Jesus is free to enter God's presence as he likes. Again, this controversy had to do with the temple tax. And as we said earlier, the temple was the place where God's presence was found. There was just no meeting God outside the temple. And so to pay the temple tax was an upkeeping of your ability to approach God. 
You are able to enter the temple under the right conditions with the proper sacrifice through a proper mediator or priest. Yet Jesus turns this dynamic on its head with the simple idea that the king of this temple is his father. So he doesn't play by the same rules and he doesn't have to. Jesus has exchanged a relationship with God through a temple for a relationship with God as a father to a child. And through this simple yet profound parable, Jesus is inviting us to see the availability of the kingdom of God right where we are. Further, because of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, God is accessible. Let me just say that again. God is accessible to you and to me. And this is the good news at the heart of the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done, you are entirely free to approach God. No hindrances, no temple, no cleaning up your act. Nothing can separate you from his loving presence. He can always be found and he genuinely wants to be with you. Maybe even some of you need to hear just that God loves you and God likes you. God loves you and he likes you. You know, many of us have experienced a father who's either physically unavailable, emotionally unavailable, or is to be approached solely on his own terms. This is not the God Jesus called father. I need to make that crystal clear. This is not the God Jesus called father. Jesus believed that God was accessible, that he could always walk into his house, so to speak, that his father hears him and is always willing to turn his gaze towards him. Jesus knew that wherever he went, his father could be found. And because Jesus has extended his position as a child of God to us, we don't operate under the rules of paying taxes to live in God's land, or we don't have to uh, give a tax to upkeep a temple or to be in God's presence. Instead, the presence of our father is readily available to us. We always have his attentive ear. You know, I was, I was on a walk this week, just kind of thinking about and mulling over this passage when I had the thought, how might my day-to-day -day life change if I genuinely believe God was always with me, like a father present to a child? That there was nowhere I could be that was outside of his safety and domain, that wherever I am, wherever that is, he's there with me. And I was struck with that because I do not live like that's true. And this is especially important for us in the wake of COVID because our normal structures for facilitating life with God are not an option right now. Church is primarily online. You're being pastored through a screen rather than in a room, maybe with five others rather than 500. Maybe, if you're lucky, your community is gathering outdoors. And so our reliance has to shift as important as the gathering is, and we can't wait until we can gather again, we cannot rely on it in the same way right now. If you are waiting to encounter God once things go back to normal, whenever that is, your soul is going to wither in the meantime. So we have to ask ourselves, what might it look like if I believe God is my father and I have unique access to him? Whether in a room of 500 or alone on my couch, that he is waiting for me right here right now. No taxes, no duties, no obligations, just simple, loving, paternal presence. A father simply longing to be with their child. And all of this is wrapped up in Jesus's view of God. And what was the result? 
Jesus of Nazareth was more secure and confident in his identity than any human being who has ever lived. Jesus was secure in the face of threat, confident in who he was and who he was not, firmly rooted in the love of God. And not only did Jesus' sense of identity affect him, but it bled over into how he related to others. Think with me again just to the end of this story. Jesus built a clear case for why he is exempt from the tax. Yet, he instructed Peter, so we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out your line, catch a fish. So Jesus has every right not to pay the tax. Yet in his security in the Father's house, it frees him to do so for the sake of others, that they may not be offended. So notice Jesus doesn't leverage his freedom at the expense of others, but is secure enough to restrict himself, to inconvenience himself. Jesus has no problem laying aside his privilege for the sake of accommodating himself to others. And in so doing, Jesus shows us a new facet of freedom as children of God. We are free to look beyond ourselves and serve others. When our identity is secure, we are freed from our preoccupation with ourselves and the bondage of self-centeredness. And that, that is a type of bondage. And we're so free, so much so that we're able to look to the interests now of others. We're able to lay aside our rights instead of just trying to defend them. A deep-seated belief that God is king, that you are his child, and that everywhere you go, you are safely within his presence and his love frees you up to no longer look after yourself first and foremost. And have you noticed how it's the most insecure people who are the most self-consumed, who can't be inconvenienced, who won't budge on an opinion or a preference? You know, I, I wonder how much of our widespread obsession with freedom and rights in the States is a direct result of having no idea who we are. And if we have no idea who we are, we have to frantically scramble to protect our freedoms because if we can't do whatever we want, then who are we? And, and who's gonna look out for us? You know, we value freedom in such a way as to treat it as a license to do whatever we want. And so we expect Jesus to explain why we're free and then say, and that's why we're not paying the taxes. And yet he gives that freedom away, making himself subject to another. He's secure. He's rooted. He's able to give. You know, my therapist has said to me, if you're going to give yourself away to others, you have to have a self to give. You know, Jesus has this solid self rooted in his identity that God was his father and that he is his son. And that enabled him to give himself away, even to his enemies. To close, I believe the invitation of Jesus in this text is less about a particular behavior and more, and just really simply, more about how we see ourselves and how we see God. It's, it's an invitation to engage in the lifelong process of coming to know and trust God's love for you as a father to a child and to let that shape your identity, allow it to become the holy center that you build your life upon. Uh, David Benner writes, in order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. Our identity is who we experience ourselves to be, the I that each of us carries within. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. 
someone who's deeply loved by God, the first thing that comes to mind. You know, Brenning Manning likens it to being able to save yourself. The Father is very fond of me. I mean, how many of us can say that, that the Father is very fond of me and actually believe that, that he not only likes me, but genuinely loves me, that he's passionately interested in me, and his heart wells with what Manning calls the relentless tenderness towards me. You know, and to come to this view of God and self is a lifelong process. It's a profound conversion, a shift. And I don't want to pretend that it happens overnight. I mean, for me, I am still very much a work in progress, slowly but surely integrating this identity into my mind and life and soul. But I think that's the number one thing God wants to do in me. But it takes time. Changing your mind and heart, how you see the world, how you approach God and spirituality and what it means to be human, all of that takes time. And it's the only way forward. Again, Benner writes, Love is our identity and our calling, for we are children of love, with a capital L. Created from love, of love, and for love, our existence makes no sense apart from divine love. You know, we ache for this kind of security. We long to know our identity and to, from that place of surety of being, of knowing that we are loved children of God, be able to live in God's presence. And not only that, to be free and able to actually love others. I think we all deeply want that. And so that is Jesus' call for us. Come and know the God that I call Father and live as a son or daughter. He says to us, embrace your identity as one who's wildly and relentlessly loved by God. Come to the God who is approachable, he's accessible, he's near, he wants to be with you. And as you discover his love, become free and become able to love others in return. We're going to turn now to a time of prayer and worship. Uh, Paul writes that God has poured his love into our hearts by the Spirit. And he goes on to say that it's the Spirit that testifies or proclaims in us that we are children of God. Meaning that if you want this, it's the Spirit who can instill in you a knowledge and a deep sense of knowing your identity as God's beloved kid. We have pastors and leaders who would love to pray with you. Or if you're in a community, you can always call or text someone from your community and have them pray with you. Either way, we would love to ask the Spirit to come and to cause this truth to permeate who you are. So you would know your identity and that it would reverberate in every corner of your being. You are loved.